Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's event. My name is Josie Warden, and I'm Head of Regenerative Design at the RSA. If you'd like to join the conversation online, then you're welcome to do so using the hashtag RSAfood on Twitter or in the YouTube comment box. I'm really pleased today to have the opportunity to talk to Professor Tim Lang about our food system, the politics that shape it, and what we can do to ensure that everyone has access to healthy and good quality food. Tim is Professor of Food Policy at City University London and an expert in the role that policy plays in shaping and responding to our food system, particularly around issues of sustainability, social justice and health. His latest book, Feeding Britain, Our Food Problems and How to Solve Them, is a really timely and fascinating investigation into where our food comes from, what we do with it, the problems in our system and how we can respond to them. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him about that today. And welcome, Tim. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I wonder if I could start actually by talking about one of a, a really central theme in your book around food inequality. Could you explain a little bit about what that means in the context of a country like the UK and also what what the last year has taught us about this when we have COVID and Brexit what have we learned about the kind of food food um, insecurity or lack of it in the UK? Well I don't think we've learned anything actually really sober to start off with. Um, I think what's happened is a little bit of re-emergence into the mass media of what people like me and probably you have known for a very long time, which is in an unequal society, diet and diet-related health and ill health are unequal. And, and that was the case 10 years ago, it's the case now. So in a sense, we've learned nothing at all. Uh, what's happened is the political awareness has gone up, the embarrassment of government normalised situation has gone up and some very interesting campaigning that had been going on for a long time got some really interesting new support, uh, the sort of the Rashford effect, which is wonderful. But if you notice, the discourse is locked in exactly where we were and have been for the last 11 years, which is that inequality is normalised. And that is the case in diet. And it's shocking and it deeply offends people in public health. It deeply offends anyone who thinks a more equal society is a better society, uh, but it's intransigent. Very little commitment to do anything about it uh, where it matters, because it requires structural change. And how does it relate to, what are the relationships between this food inequality and also insecurity around food and where the UK gets its food from and the sort of food system? Are there connections between those two things? Well, you're using this really important phrase, Josie, uh, security. And, and this phrase, food security, has in, in public policy, the sort of world I, I move in and study and contribute to, or try to contribute to, uh, in the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, in, in the 1930s, in the bookshelves behind me, I've got some of the main tracts and studies done in the, from the 1840s, actually, uh, 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 but particularly in the 1930s. There was a, a similar shock about Britain down there. There's a, a, a report from John Boyle, later became the first 
director general of the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization that he wrote in 1936 called Food, Health and Income. And it became world news because Britain and the empire had that sort of um, uh, political and publicity reach, we would say today. Uh, 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 and it showed that here was the third richest economy then in the world had this massive problem of squalid living conditions and, and poor diet that was showing up in life expectancy. The graphics in Boyd Hoare's report were drawn by his son or by hand. Today, they would be done very beautifully in computer graphics, but the message is still the same. Um, today, uh, the bottom 10th and the 10th by income have 5, 10, 12 in some cases, life expectancy, years of life expectancy gaps between them within 10 miles. I'm talking to you from inner London, uh, just north of the river from where I am, Kensington, Chelsea, those sort of posh areas, the rich parts of those, those to the poor parts, have eight years life expectancy gap to Peckham. It's five miles away. Um, this is normalized. It's basically about income. We know the public health evidence, what uh, Professor Sir Michael Marmot calls the social determinants of health, uh, that circumstances dictate what people eat. Now, here we are talking about now the sixth richest economy of the world, but spirit is a public policy uh, debate and discourse that is mostly occurring at the global level and particularly about the developing world. And yet here am I talking straight away about the rich world. The truth is across the world, within countries, within town, within households, those inequalities of consumption show up in inequalities of health, life expectancy, quality of life, not just when you die or how long you live, but how long you live as a healthy person. So I, in my work in the last 20 years, have become gently more critical about us accepting this term food security that you use, Josie. I know why you use it, and I use it. Uh, but it, it needs unpicking. And what I've tried to do is unpick exactly what's at stake there. So I'm stressing food inequalities. I think the food resilience theme in food security, can countries, can households bounce back when things are hard? We need to unpick that and have more intelligent understanding about what do we mean by food security? Just to say, well, food security is okay in Britain, we're a rich country. It doesn't pass the policy laugh test. It's ridiculous, actually. It doesn't explain what the evidence shows is the case. So at the moment, the kind of, I think I'm right to say the assumption around with food security is that we're able, as a rich country, we are able to, um, we will be able to access food from elsewhere because we'll be able to buy it. And a lot of our food in the UK comes from outside of the UK. Um, why do you think that's such a, such a challenge? And have things like, has Brexit and COVID kind of shown um, maybe highlighted more what those problems are with us looking elsewhere for, for our food, uh, food supplies? I don't think we've quite got there, but it's a really interesting question that you're asking. Has, has the last year brought this up more? You know, the, the, um, the food importation, food trade gap issue. Uh, depends which figures you use, whether using the tax and customs figures or whether using 
by value or whether you're using by tonnage. But basically, Britain doesn't feed itself. Uh, and why, in an earlier answer to you, I went back to the 1840s, this is actually the outcome of decisions made by the British state or at the state level in the 1840s. After the Napoleonic Wars, to go back a couple of hundred years, uh, Britain was triumphant along with its time. Actually, we sometimes in the history books, we try kind of imply that we defeated uh, Napoleon on his own. We didn't actually um, any more than that happened in World War I or World War II. Um, but essentially, Britain was triumphant in the sense that it had a very strong navy and started looking at a way. But essentially, taxes were put in in the 18, 1815s um, uh, on importations of food coming in. And that was done by then dominant landed and aristocratic uh, 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 interest uh, within Parliament. And for 30 years, essentially, there was a huge row. This is when Britain was industrializing. And essentially by 1846, in the famous repeal of the Corn Laws, they were known as Corn Laws, not about corn, but that was to be used for wheat and cereals. Um, in 1846, the, essentially the industrial capitalist, as opposed to the landed capitalist in triumph. And they said, no, we don't want this anymore. Uh, the Conservative Party split, really important politics that we're still seeing in a sense today. But they go back and try to explain that is because from then on, what I argued in my book, Feeding Britain, which is just out last week in paperback, what I argued in that was that the fault position wove into British public policy and public thinking, us, that somehow it's okay to be fed by other people. Now, I'm not arguing that anyone who know me knows that I'm not arguing a, a sort of an autarkic, Britain should feed itself and close borders and, you know, etc, etc. Um, uh, trade in ideas and food has, has, has gone on and uh, in, in, in a country like Britain uh, is probably inevitable. But to get to 50% imports is kind of strategically tricky and certainly in defence terms, it's a theme I discuss in my book. Could you defend this? Well, we didn't in 1939. We didn't in 1916. And we're still putting ourselves into a very tricky... not going to be fed by the European Union or we're going to have lorry hold-ups. We should think about this very carefully. So uh, I'm going back to your first question, trying to unpick what do we mean by food security? I think we've got to have a bit more an intelligent and savvy discussion about what do we mean by that? And I'm throwing at you food resilience, food inequalities, food defense, uh, food security uh, 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 in the sense of um, is everyone being well fed, food health, uh, the distribution of food within that, those become very big political issues. Now to answer your question, um, we don't talk about that enough, but Brexit, and particularly January the 1st, has highlighted that. Indeed, one of the things the government is doing at the moment is has brilliantly a cack-handed mess at ports. Ports going to Ireland uh, and ports going from Britain, England, actually, to, uh, to France and Belgium. Uh, uh, 
because even food that doesn't come from the European Union mostly comes out and then comes through wagons and ships and on uh, the Eurotunnel. So a big rethink has to go on. I'll be very political with a small p. Um, it keeps talking our friends in Europe. Well, it's just them in the nether regions, actually. And that's not gone down well. And it's kicked particularly the food industry. Already you're seeing fisher folk understandably bleating about how they've been two-timed and sold out. Well, what do they expect, actually? Uh, they're now, now the public is learning what people and me gently try to say all the time, which is we export a lot of fish and the British only think fish is cod. Um, well, you know, actually, <laughs> I can tell you, anyone who understands fishing industry um, knows that, uh, you know, lobsters and langoustines and, uh, and scallops, a lot of those things just go straight, and mussels, particularly, go straight over to the continent. Well, you know, that's called trade. So you've got to think through issues like land use, Britain, you know, we joke about ourselves and people used to say, oh, you know, the wet, wet, wet Britain, you know, actually it's a fantastic climate and very benign. And with climate change coming on, um, we've got lots of advantages. Climate change is a disaster for the food system generally, but we've got to enhance my interest in this term resilience. Can we bounce back? Can we cope with one moment floods, next moment drought? This is a land use issue. And I'm someone who urges um, really quite seriously that as a rich society with this default position built into food culture, that food is available 24 hours a day, 364 days a year, it's closed in Christmas, the only day, um, uh, that somehow we've got to grow up, uh, we've got to become a bit more real. If we don't want to have um, Eastern Europeans coming and picking uh, uh, Brussels sprouts in my home county, Lincolnshire, where I was born, well, who's going to do it? Is it robots? Well, that's more jobs going. Is it do you not bother about, you're happy to have Brussels sprouts coming picked by migrant labour in the Netherlands? Well, wh where is that? There are big issues, to come back to the term you read earlier, mm -hmm. big issues about social justice. Food isn't just nutrients, it's values. I'm always saying in a very uh, uh, sort of light way, value for money is not a good way for looking at food. Values for money is much better. That's really interesting. And it sounds like with all of all of these different elements that there is just a real lack of, of, a, of a strategy. And you talk about that, of the lack of a food strategy over the last years. And I know there's one in development now in, in England. Um, why do you think that's been something that's been so hard for government or, or lack of interest for government to focus on, on creating this kind of joined up strategy that really looks at all of these different issues? Well, I mean, that's a, a great question. But a very, very big question, as I'm sure you know. Um, you know. All, whichever way you cut a cake, let's think of the food system as a cake. Whichever way you cut it, there are going to be slices and they're separating from other slices. So you always get this problem in public policy, the joining up problem. How are you going to join up? How are you going to integrate it? Why food is so interesting and so extremely uh, delicate is because inevitably it's broken up. Food is foreign policy, it's economic, it's health, it's justice, 
it's morality, it's culture, it's everything. It's family relations, it's household, it's urban, it's population. Wow, that's a tricky um, sort of challenge in, in policy terms. Uh, but I'm going to be really nasty about our political class now. They forget their own history. Uh, they actually have been so concerned about breaking up government. The last 11 years has been shocking, actually. And the Labour government before that wasn't much better. It was, a, it was quite a lot better, but not much better. Uh, and the Thatcher era and, and Major era, which basically said, you know, we're in the European Union and we'll just let markets rip. So the Brits were all that market, let markets decide. I call that in my book, let Tesco et al. Um, uh, decide. Um, that's slightly unethical at all because they're framed by circumstances as well. But let, let me leave that standing. Uh, essentially, the market mantra has run out of steam. Markets can't sort out climate change. Markets can't sort out biodiversity destruction. Food's the biggest destroyer of biodiversity, the biggest sort of, of potable, drinkable water on the planet, the biggest land use, the biggest employer, 1.1, at least billion, 1.1 billion are employed in agriculture alone, alone. In a country like Britain, uh, food is the biggest employer, 4.1 million are employed in food. Only 460,000 on the land, many of those part-time. The same number in factories, many of them like labor. Uh, retailing uh, about 1.1, catering 1.4. You know, there's more money made in logistics, trucking food, than is made by farming. This is messy. Unless you get an overview and you have a joined up food process, it's going to be fragmented. The financial and commodity crisis, Rosie, of 2007-8, where oil doubled in a few months, international traded food commodity prices also doubled. Oil has revolutionized food. It's not just moving it about, it's replaced labor, replaced um, uh, 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 animal labor, plowing, oxen, horses, uh, uh, but it's the infrastructure of food. It trucks food around. You know, today, as I show in my book, one in five, 20% of all um, uh, wagon movements are food. You know, it's just, you can't conceive of the complexity of the food system. Satellites in the sky determine uh, when you go and buy food at a supermarket checkout and you think it's added when it goes beep it's not it's reordering uh, it, it's a constant seamless movement of food commodities In that sense joining that up requires institutional linkages now in the 2007-8 commodity crisis labor government to its credit recognized holy moses this isn't the problem of africa which People like to get some problem or Asia, you know, far distant where we can just throw aid at it. This is us. Absolutely right. We are overeating, malnutrition. We are the drivers. We are the powerful. We are the sources of capital, etc., uh, etc. Et and to their credit, the Labour government began uh, a review, a cabinet review. 
I, I was an advisor to it, so I was quite involved. Um, and within a year, a new strategy was hammered out across industries to say, we've got to sort this out. And then for three years, basically 2007 to 2010, a really interesting process where came a very interesting country in food policy terms of dealing the answer to your question, uh, trying to join it up. And then the new government came in the coalition and threw it all away. And so here we are 11 years later, still waiting, when in fact this government has only been obsessed about getting us out of the European Union, not thinking, then what? You know, and we're now, we're now Josie, in the then what phase. So uh, as I, I explain all of that story in my feeding Britain book, but the reason I'm rehearsing it now with you is because it answers your question. What do we need? We need a joined up food policy. That's not saying, well, the environment is the only thing that matters. This actually, it's all of it that matters equally and well. And we haven't got the institutional architecture to do that. That's the really tricky bit, Jesse. We've got to do it better. And that's partly uh, why people like me get very uh, sort of troubled by the lack of institutional architecture in the British state. We've devolved to Scotland a bit of power, to London, power, nothing on food, a bit, bit to Wales and sometimes to Northern Ireland. And we don't quite know how to deal with England. Actually, we just decentralize and create what I call in my book, a bioregional system of governance. The agents of England could start developing bottom up um, joined up policies to fit with a joined up national policy and so on. Uh, it's not the wit of a reasonably intelligent policy makers to sort that out, but they're not doing it because they're not under pressure. And the questions I ask in my book, why does it take wars or crises to get the British state to do the right thing about food? The way you lay out all of those different aspects is really helpful because I think for, for many people, the idea that, for example, we have an agriculture bill that doesn't talk about food is really is really antithetical. You sort of assume that farming and food are always inherently connected. Um, so understanding actually that there are all of these different drivers that are, that are pushing it in different directions is, is really helpful. Um, and I think often our, our food problems are positioned as a kind of zero sum game between health or sustainability or price. And so often it's the, at the moment, as you say, the value rather than values, the kind of financial value, the price that, that kind of wins out. Um, how can some of these competing sort of interests be brought more closely in line with one another? That's another great question, Josie. I, the short answer is with difficulty, but it'll be done. Uh, I, I show in my book that there was a moment when there was a realization at the end of the 20 of the 2000s when the British state after the financial and commodity crisis realized it got to do it but other G7 economies did likewise across northern Europe there was a really interesting uh, exchange and discussion going on between the Dutch the British the French uh, the Swedes, the Germans, to say, look, we've got to actually have a different framework of understanding. And in academic terms, we've got to apply multi-criteria thinking to food, not just say if it's cheap and if it's on the supermarket shelf, it's okay, because it isn't. Um, uh, uh, but that's tricky. Uh, but the, uh, 
the bit that's missing is political leadership. Unless politicians want to do something, it doesn't happen unless there is massive pressure from below, um, from the people. Uh, and in food politics, there is now a very articulate food movement, but it's fragmented. Animal welfare, conservation, environment, health, consumers, etc., etc. Um, that doesn't help. There's not enough unity, but very good people try to pull that together, and there, there is more uh, alliance working in civil society than uh, often the public is aware of. Um, but the environment and conservation movements, I must have a go at them, and I've written to them and with this privately. I think they've backed themselves into a corner with uh, thinking it's all wonderful, this agriculture bill, because it ain't. It's not resolving other people's land use and so on. But anyway, I'll let that be. Um, what we need is a, a new institutional architecture. We've got to sort out the problem. We've got to have not the, I think, pathetically weak LEPs, the local enterprise partnerships that uh, replaced already regional development agencies in England. We've got to actually really get a grip of English governance and we've got to decentralize it. It's ridiculous that mayors have food powers. They should do. Mayors were given powers uh, from the 1860s, 1860s, in response to dealing with toleration of food. We need that again. We need a rethink about governance, food governance. It's very policy wonkish, um, but I don't apologize for saying that in a talk to the RSA. You know, that's what the RSA has done well historically, is thinking through those, those things. Um, and we need to do it again. Jersey. We need to do it in a very big way. And I trouble, I'm troubled that the present government is again fragmenting. We created DEFRA, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, to try and have some bit of joining up. Uh, it's now might as well be three separate ministries, frankly. Um, it's not joining up. Um, but hey-ho, we are where we are. <laughs> that's, that's where we are. But my job is to say we are. Yeah, what we can do next. And um, you talked earlier about that um, sort of devolution and bio-regional bio uh, responses to this challenge um, and the challenge there with LEPs. Can you think of any, or can you give us any examples of, of what good practice like, might look like if we kind of move to more of that sort of bio-regional approach? And are there other parts of the world or um, uh, that you've seen that kind of good practice happening or interesting practice happening? Well, I mean, it's easy to say, but one always looks to the Nordics, you know, the, you know Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, etc., uh, you know, uh, are, are small in population terms, uh, but they, they've got a culture of cooperation. I mean, look, Britain's just left the European Union, or UK has left the European Union. The consequences of that are, are not trivial. Um, well, I don't want to go back to that. I think unless we address, do we want to talk to others about food? Do we want to have food as something which is negotiated or is it just imposed? Well, those are very big policy principles to discuss. We haven't got, as I point out in my book, uh, Feeding Britain book, um, we haven't got a Navy to protect those war. We haven't actually got cybersecurity adequate. One of the surprising things to some of my colleagues, as I said, look, if you know, cybersecurity is 
intrinsically important for food defense today. And I'm not seeing enough going on in the national cybersecurity strategy about food defense. Uh, it's pretty easy to take out the distribution system, the just-in-time system, uh, by taking out satellites. Um, but we won't go there for the flagging that. It's very serious indeed. Um, so the joining up isn't just touchy-feely at the local level. It's actually very important strategic issues about national security in the, in the defense sense. Uh, but on good practice, let me get, be very prosaic and go back to something I, I flagged very early on in this uh, discussion with you, Josie, which was horticulture. Um, uh, Britain doesn't grow enough vegetables. Now, I was a child in India. I love mangoes. Do I expect Britain to grow mangoes? No, come on. Bananas, Britain's favorite, come on. Pineapples, no, 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 etc. Well, there's a lot that we can do. To be importing pears and, and soft fruits is ludicrous absolutely ludicrous and it's also an imperial water exchange you're buying in from very often water stressed countries embedded water food is embedded water think of it like that and you look at food very differently indeed now look at horticulture uh, we have what is it last time i looked properly about seven major carrot growers uh, a lot in Old Fenlands. I always said I was born in Lincoln. You know, the Lincolnshire Fens are below sea level. Now just apply a climate change lens to this, Josie. And by the end of the century, pretty likely sea will have gone up a meter. A meter. Sea defenses, well, we're letting them go. Nice for wetlands and things, good for ecosystems. Let them go East Anglia. What about growing food? Uh, have we thought about that? Uh, no. Should we decentralize that? Should we get the regions of England and North Wales and South Wales or the mid-Scotland to be thinking about horticulture? Yes, we should. Right now. That means having to think about skills and training and preparing the education. And that is a complex issue that just says, why aren't we growing enough pears? Why aren't we growing? Well, the only thing we are growing more of is strawberries under plastic with migrant labor. <laughs> you know, we're back to the joints, Josie. But I've tried to give you that example. For me, if I had one minute, not with Michael Gove, but with uh, Neil Parrish, chair of the Afro committee, or uh, George Eustace, uh, I just say horticulture, horticulture, horticulture horticulture, horticulture. That's really interesting. And I think, again, you were saying just now around the lack of political leadership and the need for, or a potential need for um, a more of a joining up of the environmental and food movements. Um, what role do you think citizens play in that? And you, I know you were involved in giving um, evidence to the Climate Assembly last year, Citizens Climate Assembly. Do you think there's role for more of those kinds of spaces where citizens can also deliberate on the trade-offs and the more the values in foods? I do. I think ultimately, you know, uh, I'm a social scientist who's worked a lot on health or what uh, 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 we call ecological health, the relationship between environment and, and, and human health. Um, uh, I think citizens' engagement is essential. If you, no matter how you think about it, consumer culture has been distorted. I, I don't say that lightly. 
we overconsume, malconsume alongside a vast, not pockets, but lakes of underconsumption uh, in this rich country of ours. Citizens' uh, income is really important. One of the pleasures in my life, um, and one of the things that surprised me since my Feeding Britain came out, was huge discussion going on about it. And I was really privileged to be asked to come and uh, be one of the experts brought into the um, uh, Wealth into the Climate Assembly, an unprecedented six Commons House, uh, parliamentary select committees joining together. But now to Frank, the Climate Assembly produced a really rich report. And, and food was a, a, a serious element of that. And it came up with really good recommendations. But what's happened since? You know, you go through these processes and government just sort of says, oh yes, thank you, off it's pushed. But what interests me, Joseph, is around the country, there are extraordinary discussions going on. In the lockdown, in the last year, I've been talking to hundreds, thousands of people who, you know, asked me to come and do a talk uh, or do, you know, 600 people on a webinar. Uh, there is a really big interest in this. So I'm not confident, but I'm really impressed by um, the literacy that's building up and the quiet pressure that I think is emerging. And it really, uh, you know, it's not 1939, but it's certainly a 1937 moment. Uh, of where there is rapid politicization with a small p of food politics. People are beginning to realize just having a supermarket um, say, we'll look after you, sunshine, that ain't a good food policy. Let me tell you, as someone who talked to the food industry a lot, I have never known them so worried, ever, uh, ever, ever, ever. Uh, they're just about coping with just-in-time systems that they've locked themselves into, uh, but shelves are not actually perfect. And big dislocations going on. And we haven't even got to the situation of where Britain imposes its customs systems. Uh, and as a colleague of mine said to me the other day, uh, in the name of getting away for European democracy, uh, bureaucracy, we've got an incredible bureaucratic system now being applied to the food system. Small businesses, which have now pulled out of doing trade, and other small businesses in food that have just relocated to the European Union. Now, this is a big economic impact because it wasn't thought through. It just wasn't thought through. But we are where we are. You know, my reading of British food history is this has happened lots because we have this, what I call the sort of imperial default position. Don't worry, other people will feed it. But actually, I'm not so sure about that. And it's, yeah, I think that term food imperialism is quite, it feels like quite a shocking term as well around, I think for a lot of, for a lot of people not having really considered like where stuff comes from or the fact that we're relying on, as you say, the kind of water or the labour or the um, the land of other countries to kind of to feed us. Um, and you talked earlier, and you mentioned just then as well, around um, supermarkets and the sort of approach we've had around uh, let, let Tesco sort it out uh, mentality. Um, and obviously the, the supermarkets this year have done incredibly well um, compared to lots of sectors in, during COVID. Where do you think there is... Um, uh, where are they kind of um, owed 
credit for some of the things they've done and where actually is it showing a really a kind of dangerous approach to food and actually and also have you seen any um interesting responses from uh, more grassroots food suppliers or um movements around tackling some of the problems of supply during covid the single strategic major strategic mistake the government made which was a sign that they had not done preparations of food resilience uh, for goodness sake we had cabinet ministers who didn't realize food came across uh uh you know uh, the channel i mean it's staggeringly incompetent and indeed stupid um but it, it happened you know the supermarkets worked their socks off and flows were disrupted um but they were given a present by the government by closing down the hospitality industry. I was highly critical of that. The hospitality sector should have been reorganized uh, from local and more community feeding centers. Why? Not just because it would have been sensible uh, and because history shows you need those facilities, but because the hospitality sector has become 30% of the food system in britain um not it's its employer in the food system uh but it's it's vastly important for small suppliers and and sme sectors the small and mid-sized enterprises uh and it just has destroyed those you know i've had famous chefs and many people i used to be a trustee borough market borough market you know this uh, champion of sort of the new wave British approach to food. You know, it's, it's actually Borough Market, it actually looks after 150 businesses in that one acre site. Uh, and I learned a huge amount from my 10 years uh, as a trustee, non-profit. Non it's the only non-profit market in, in, in the world that we know. Uh, and I'm quite well informed about the sector. Um, that was, really, really messed up by how the government just said, leave it to Tesco et al. Now, the meetings in the open letter to the Prime Minister and the government that two colleagues and I uh, from Cardiff and Sussex Universities, Eric Milstein and Terry Marston, wrote the Prime Minister an open letter but for the public as well uh, last week. We said, look, this is inexcusable, this lack of preparation for food emergencies. Uh, and they relied just upon nine companies, nine companies, which have 94.5% of the retail market, they gave them the other 30% and then complained when the British went and emptied the shelves. Well, they emptied the shelves because the government said you couldn't go and use the hospitality sector. Instead of organizing the hospitality sector to maintain those supplies and to develop in emergency situations, something different. Everyone recognized that this was an emergency, but the lack of preparation says something again, I go into, and I declare an interest. I'm on one body I'm on at the moment is the London Food Board for advising the mayor of London for Sadiq Khan, but I was for Boris Johnson too. And the mayor of London, uh, the uh, system set up after the lessons from the lorry strike of 1999-2000, that period, of creating the Civil Contingencies Act 2004, set up what are called resilience forums. And these are supposed to be local emergency preparation bodies. And let me do it, disclosing any secrets or things. Um, 
when we tried to get engagement on food with the Resilience Forum for London, uh, we realized there was no intelligence, no understanding, no one really knew, including the food industries, actually where the pinch points are and the difficulties are. And so the reflex of the state when there was a crisis was just leave it to Tesco et al. So you can say they've had a great war and there are many people in the food industry, as I quote one of them, uh, 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 quite a few months ago said, Tim, it's going to be really hard to get back the power from these retailers when uh, some sort of normality returns. Indeed. And I suppose on that note around power, like pe for people watching this or people who are maybe not necessarily involved at the policy level, what are things that you would recommend they do or read or look at that can sort of help them to um, create some of that upwards movement to policymakers? Well, I think there's a, a really uh, wonderful, you know, I'm an ex-farmer. I've farmed for seven years. I'm always, I wake up at 5.30 every day thinking I've got to go and milk cows and I turn over and I go to sleep again and think, thank goodness I'm not. Um, there is a huge debate, a wonderful debate going on about land. Um, some of it's very romantic, some of it's very practical, you know, and the danger is, and, and I say someone who tries to contribute to that debate, um, don't just think the food issue is about land and the countryside and rural existence. It, it isn't. The food system is farming and its inputs. Farming goes bust if the subsidies go. And just wait till 25, that's only four years ahead, when the subsidy system starts coming down. All the analyses show that a lot of farmers are not, not don't, don't think the small farmers and the big farmers will survive. Some of the big farmers are highly in debt. They've built vast factories, uh, cow sheds and pig sheds. They're in debt and they're kept afloat by the subsidies, actually. Just look at the figures. I reproduced some of the brilliant studies done by uh, people the National Audit Office is reviewing again at present. So keep alive to that land and countryside issue, of course, but don't get sucked into British and the flag is on it and that deals with it. It doesn't. I'm always urging people, get wise about the complexity of the food system. You know, NGOs, uh, the SUSTAIN, the NGO Alliance, is, uh, of, uh, puts a lot of this together. It does fabulous work on that. Um, I have to say this, and please don't think I'm flogging a book, borrow or read my Feeding Britain book. This is where I tried to summarize, you know, complexity in a way that was okay for people. And, um, well, it's, uh, you know, the paper, hardback sold out completely. Um, so it's come, in paperback. it's come out in paperback. You know, borrow one, read it. There are discussion groups discussing it. What do we do? Get, get wise to the... England food strategy, have a look at the Welsh strategy. The Scottish nourish movement is fabulous. You know, is it doing enough to get us to a, you know, your phrase, social justice, um, a socially just food system? No, it isn't yet, Josie, I'm very sober. Um, but unless we, the people, contribute to that, back to your question about citizens' engagement, uh, the politicians will not deliver what we need. You know, educate your MP. The animal welfare movement is fantastically well organized with its MPs. 
you know, I'm in the lockdown, Holly uh, and I, we put together 28 different signatories from right across the food system, writing to the retailers, private letters, writing to the manufacturing. Are you going to jump if it comes to hormone-fed beef? Are you going to import it? Yes or no? Uh, because that's going to lower food standards. Uh, similar movements being now uh, about gene editing, for example. Now, I'm not worried particularly about gene editing. It's a question, where does it go and who's going to shape it and for whom, what purposes, whose values are going to triumph in this, Josie? So I think there's a, an engagement that we can have without being obsessed. And I'm someone who enjoys my food. I have to say that. Don't, don't, don't stop eating. Enjoy your food, but take it more seriously, is what I would say. Uh, because there's a whole world of values goes into your mouth, and much of it is out of sight. You know, I was a child in India, and I love rice and dal. Just look at the figures. I put them in my book about the embedded water that comes into British, uh, into Britain. The, our national dish, curry, um, or national dish, pizza. Uh, unwrap it and have a think about it. So Great. there's a joined up world that goes down our mouths, Josie. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think that's a really good message to end on, that sense of actually really uh, enjoying food and thinking about the, uh, the aspects and the complexities that go into it. And I think the, your book does a fantastic job of that, of really understanding that. And we're, I think we're so often pushed to, um, can, you know, consume differently by switching our milk or our, uh, meat, etc. But I think really understanding those complexities that go into something and, and educating ourselves is so important. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Tim. Uh, let me flag too, this is a really important year for Britain. Uh, we host the G7 in July. Uh, we're hosting the COP26 uh, meeting in Glasgow in November. The UN Food Systems Summit is happening in September. You know, everything that we've talked about, Josie, is up there being discussed at the global level, at the national level, at the rich world level, but it's not happening at the local level. Oh, yes, it is. You know, in the lockdown, I've talked in Dorset, in Kendall's doing climate change, citizens' jury. Tap into something that's happening in your area and join it and uh, discuss it. Discuss it. It's, it's too important food leave it to Tesco et al, or crazy imperial default positions, let someone else feed us. It's time we grow up, really, as a British culture. Thanks, Tim. And yeah, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been really informative look at one of the most, I mean, the most important issues of our time and a really important time, as you say, this year particularly. Um, for those of you watching, I really hope the conversation has given you an idea of the sorts of insights you can get from Tim's book, Feeding Britain, which is, as I say, out now in paperback and really recommend it for pulling together all of those different aspects and understanding much more around what's really, what really happens in our food system and what can be done about it. Um, so make sure you keep uh, up to date with the RSA's channels for more events like this one, as well as updates from our policy research teams, um, particularly our Regenerative Futures programme, which is exploring much more around how we bring together social and environmental justice to tackle the challenges we face, such as climate change. Um, I think that's all from me. So thank you very much for watching and thank you very much to Professor Tim Lang. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.